Hi, this is Nader Sammy, CEO of Nimble Solutions. I'm really excited to be here today with the legendary Dr. Alejandro Badia. He's an upper limb orthopedist, founder of OrthoNow, and also the author of Healthcare from the Trenches. And we are doing this podcast live from the business and operations of ASCs and the future of Dentistry Roundtable here in Chicago, Illinois. So welcome. Dr. Badia, uh, really excited Thank to you, have Nader. you here. Thanks, and, thanks for uh, having me and, and to the whole Becker organization for this incredible uh, educational experience. Great. Well, let's, you know, it's been it's been fun so far and today's today's going to be a fun day and we get to spend a little bit of time with Rob Gronkowski later today. So I'm excited about that. <laughs> it'll be it'll be hard to tell who's Rob and who's Nodder today when we're standing next to each other. <laughs> so uh, so let's just jump in. So yeah. so just starting off, you obviously have an incredible background, varied um, and and just really wanted to start from the beginning of, can you discuss how you built your practice? What ancillary additions, such as building your own ASC um, and others have you made over the years? Sure. So I uh, I trained in the Northeast and my I think my Cuban roots uh, drove me to Miami where I wanted to use my Spanish. And almost 30 years ago, I co-founded something called the Miami Hand Center, which was um, a group that eventually grew to five. We did a lot of academia. We're completely independent. And within the first couple of years, we built our own ASC. So we were way ahead of the curve, uh, certainly in Miami. That was in, well, we started the practice in 95, but we had our ASC by 98. Yeah, very early. And we, uh, what was amazing is it often ran 24 seven. We would uh, get a call, maybe finishing elective cases at 9, 10 p.m., and get a call from one of the dozen hospitals we essentially covered, and they trusted us. So they would ship the patient over. And that was much more efficient than us leaving what we're doing, going to a hospital, God knows where, parking, going in, waiting, getting bumped by a, a hot gallbladder or something, which happened to me many times. <laughs> and and the, so what happened is once we did that, I I couldn't look back. So what happened is, like many groups, after about 13 years at it splintered. I was the first one to peel off, and I built my own center in Doral next to the airport at uh, MIA. And I, I was kind of spoiled, honestly, having uh, my own surgery center. So I did that. I built that, and I, I partnered with uh, Titan Health uh-huh. back then that later sold to USPI, and then we were 100% physician-owned. Um, I'm still in solo practice. Um, I'm about to bring on one, possibly two people in the next months and then two years. Uh, but there's no question that I saw the vision of having a one-stop shop center. It's obviously it's convenient for the physician and and the staff, but it's fantastic for the patient, and even terrific for the payers. But they don't see that part, and that has been my challenge. Yeah. As you know, so the in terms of ancillaries, obviously, if you're a surgeon, having a an, an ambulatory surgery center to me is critical. Okay, not to mention it's additional income. I'm not giving away that facility income to a big brick and mortar. Right. Um, and then I and then to feed that surgery center, I started Ortho Now, as you know, Nate, and you, I know you've been a, a yeah. big supporter of that. And Ortho Now is an orthopedic walk-in center. And that, that's it. So people think we don't even call it urgent care because our extensive data analytics shows that it's only 30% of those patients are urgent meaning a number one is usually ankle sprain. So our number one diagnosis month after month is right knee pain or lumbar pain for whatever reason. So we've got the data. Uh, the important thing is access to the community. Yeah. 
So, so tell, tell me a little bit about that. What went into starting ortho now and do you see many of these types of, you know, you, you'll hear about an orthopedic urgent yeah. care here and there, but I don't hear of them too often. Right. Um, they're kind of popping up, but, but tell us a little bit about, again, what went into that decision and, you know, what, what's, what's kind of happening in that market and is there any kind of competitive you know, situation in your arena? Well, the, the, I think the concept was, was being developed right around the time that, uh, that I, I did mine. Uh, but I saw them as very fragmented. So I had a couple uh, people that were inspiring to me. One was a, a fella out of um, out of Texas that started something called Prompt Orthopedic Care. He said, why do I have to see every single person with knee pain? I'd rather see the one that, that needs an ACL and I can spend time to discuss with them. So it is a feeder to the practice and, of course, as I mentioned, to the ASC. But they remain fragmented. So if you live uh, where you live, right, in the Carolinas, there's quite a few ortho-urgent cares. Uh, there's many in the Midwest, particularly Minneapolis. But in the majority of country, including New York, where I trained, that is still a foreign concept. And patients will go in with the confidence that I, I think is great that, that patients have for physicians, the confidence that a general urgent care practitioner is going to know how to work up their knee pain and, or, and treat it. And that just isn't the case. There's right. too much to know in medicine. You, I'm an orthopedic surgeon. You wouldn't want to see me for back pain. I, I, I could miss something. Yeah. Okay. So uh, so I'm hoping that OrthoNow will, let's say, almost standardize it. And then and then we can have great discussion with the payers because it, they don't really listen when you're small and when you're just in, in a few communities. So we, we hope to go national with it. Uh, but I, I think it will be a household Name maybe not ortho now maybe a competitor but somebody will grab this yeah. and run with it and and one thing that I noticed um, I guess check me on my my you know my facts here but what I've seen with ortho urgent cares around the country is that they're typically utilizing the existing office space yes. that they have and then it becomes really an after hours right. scenario where between five and nine or you know let's say that's the window you can go in if you had some issue. Um, but my understanding is ortho now is their own standalone exactly. operations from kind of eight to eight um, and, and staffed more fully as opposed to with just kind of junior folks. at, at Exactly. It's uh, well for the look, the, the extended hours is, is great for patients. And I, I, I definitely welcome that, but it's not the ideal situation for those clinicians. I mean, every physician for most part wants to be busier and they want to grow and you end up cannibalizing your practice somewhat if you're simply offering that convenience without putting standalone centers in strategic places. Okay, most practices are not in a strip mall next to an anchor store, such as a major supermarket or a CrossFit, which right. is really ideal, right? Or a you know, karate studio or a bicycle shop, right? In other words, you can have a very small, lean, mean orthopedic walk-in center in a place that it's easy to access, easy to park. You don't have to get a parking ticket. You can just go in and you're in and out in about an hour. That's our model. About seven zero, seventy 70 minutes or less is when we can assess somebody, get the right study, usually a, a, a digital x-ray, maybe ultrasound. Some centers will have an in-office MRI and you can do all that in, in about an hour. And the patient walks out with a brace, with a cast, with maybe having had an injection or as you saw a, a few minutes ago, if it's something potentially surgical or complex, we use ortho chat 
which which is within our OrthoNow app, and that way they communicate. So I saw a patient essentially. I saw the X-ray, got the the history on a patient who had a hyperextension injury to a, a finger, and already diagnosed, you know, what I, what we call a volar plate fracture. In other words, I already told that clinician, this is my recommendation. That's pretty valuable. Yeah. Uh, and and I just finished hearing uh, Zed Newworth. I'm reading um, uh, the second of his two books currently. He just gave a talk. I had to leave early for this. And Zeeb says that we're not going to be talking about digital health anymore. It's just health. It's going to be health in a few years. You know, we don't say you're going to watch, you're going to stream a, a digital movie. You're just going to watch a movie at home, right? right? So that's what's going to happen in health. And I'm 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 happy that in the musculoskeletal realm, we're 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 we're, we're trying to lead the way. That's great. So so set them up at CrossFit facilities, <laughs> yes. at all the youth youth sporting right? fields around the and country, listen, nursing homes. We're, we're an aging population, aging and and pickleball courts. And, yes, yes, set up there, and you're you're, that's you're right. gonna have that so is, much business. That is so true. <laughs> um, that's that's. Well, it's all about exciting. public education. About a month ago, I had an article that came out about the five uh, most common pickleball injuries because we see them at Ortho now. So the the goal is to educate the public and also preventive. So we 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 give recommendation what you can do to minimize those strains or sprains. You know, we so, can we can go into that, but I'm, that's important. I'm gonna have to read that article because I like playing. And Rob <laughs> Gronkowski, we're interviewing later today, is a big player. Oh, is he? Okay, He's a big well, six, we'll uh... six foot six version of a player, but yes, <laughs> that'd be uh, scary. Yes. So so kind of moving uh, moving forward. So in addition to you know your booming practice in Miami. You also opened a practice in New York City. What drove that decision? Are you doing different types of things in the different cities or what's what's happening in New York? Yeah, well, it's it's certainly different. Uh, it doesn't have the infrastructure I have in Miami, but um, why I did it is simply I'm a New Yorker. I, I feel at home there. I spent a decade. I, I bought an apartment when I started my surgical residency at NYU in Bellevue, and I really love being there. Um, and um, I have a wonderful home in Miami, but I have a, a small one-bedroom very strategically located and I, I like to go. So I go every four to six weeks because, you know, the world is flat. And the reality is people can get to different places and Miami and New York have a strong connection. Yes. They've had it for years. So I'm now just simply giving my patients an option. Now, this is nothing to do with OrthoNow, but my hope in the future is that we would have a number of OrthoNow centers around the city. And me being um, in, in Manhattan every month or so, will help me drive that corporate decision once Great. once we have the right strategic uh partner. And what where in the city is your office? Um so the um it's in in Gram it's next to the uh, Gramercy Surgery Center which okay. is literally blocks from my yeah. old stomping grounds right. hospital for joint uh -huh. disease. It's now NYU Langone Orthopedic Hospital. Uh but I'm four blocks from that. Okay. Because Great. I really don't need to be in a hospital for yeah. for essentially everything I do. Right. Oh, that's that's great. Yeah. Smart. And I live in Tudor City. I don't know if you know. It's yeah. a, a wonderful nice. little little oasis. Yeah, I used, I used to live in New York City years ago. <laughs> it's great. Super fun. I was I was up on the Upper East Side, so a little oh, further away from wonderful. you. But the city is still the city, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. So uh, in, in terms of cutting edge technologies, you're um, you've you've always been, again, very current cutting edge kind of guy. What are you using today to help your practice and your patients? And what emerging technologies do you see? on the horizon that will change the game for orthopedics? Well, well, certainly the communication between um, the clinicians is, is, is critical. And already people use uh, regular texting or, or in Latin America, my colleagues use WhatsApp. 
but now patients will be able to access us as well. So we we were doing uh, telemedicine well before the pandemic, uh, but the patients often didn't adopt it. So we had it, but now with the pandemic, people learned to use Zoom and other platforms. So now people welcome it. Uh, the reality is that the majority of orthopedics, unlike say behavioral health, uh, really has to be hands-on. So many times we'll do a very quick console and say, no, we really need an x-ray or, or that doesn't sound too bad. Ice it, do this, do that. And then if it's not better in some days, come see us. Um, my own personal practice of, of Badia Hand to Shoulder Center, uh, because of all, frankly, because of all the challenges going on in our healthcare system, I realized being in Miami that I could build a practice without walls, uh, mostly in uh, Western Hemisphere. So I have Canadians, I have uh, Central Americans, I have South Americans, Caribbean come. And before they make that big trip, they want to get comfortable with me. And I also want to have a game plan. I don't want them to come and and say, wow, um, that doesn't need a rotator cuff repair, but rather you may need a, you know, a reverse shoulder replacement because that's not a repairable cuff. So those are decisions I can make by looking at the imaging and a big shout out to mymedicalimages.com. That was started by, uh, by uh, Dan Hodgman, who was one of the first, um, basically one of the first digital x-ray, one of the first PAC systems. And we were the second group in the country, Miami Hand Center, to have PACs. So he started this in a way to download images and you can view them remotely and from, from different types of platforms. So that I'm actually speaking to the patient about their imaging study on Zoom Health. Okay. And by the time they come to Miami, we, we have a plan yeah. and it can be altered slightly, but we have a plan. That's excellent. Um, and also kind of related to all of this activity that we've been talking about, you've really kind of shifted, I think, the focus of your practice and have done a lot with medical tourism. Yep. Um, what kind of drove you in that direction and what steps have you taken to ensure success in that arena? And again, what what impact broadly has that had on the shift of your your mix of, of practice in terms of payers, patients, et cetera? Well, I tell people that the the inbound, you know, so to say, medical tourist or medical traveler that people like to say now, um, it, it's it's a different paradigm. Uh, unfortunately, what's happening with uh, healthcare and bureaucracy and the insurance companies, it, it's 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 been very stressful for patients and clinicians. And I hate the word provider, by the way. So the clinicians, and what happens is when I I noticed that I saw these patients. It was a different dialogue. They were very focused just on solving their problem rather than all the complexities that go along with, with accessing care, which is very unfortunate. So I realized that it was more enjoyable. So I started, um, let's say, educating those patients from, say, one of my top uh, cities right now is Guayaquil, Ecuador. I mean, I'm better known in Guayaquil in, in the neighborhood of San Borondon than I am in South Beach, which is minutes from my house. I, I really am. I'm yeah. better known there. Uh, patients come and said, oh, you, you know, you're very well known. And um, but it's a pleasure because they come very focused. Um, and of course, the reimbursements, um, which is a terrible word, by the way, to pay. I, they, they pay us. Right. We get paid for work we do. And it's it's still fair. Uh, when those international insurance companies start going, and it's happening, uh, transitioning to sort of brokering us through American companies, then unfortunately I have to move to a self-pay model. Yeah. And many of these patients are willing to do that. Say, say, you know what, my shoulder, my wrist is worth uh, 
the same as, you know, having that European vacation this year. Yeah. Um, that's a decision the patients make. And I, I think we're going to be faced with that in this country very, very soon. Yeah. So what efforts? So you just said Ecuador, one of the cities in Ecuador yes. is your number one, yeah. you know, city, I assume, like, I don't know what's two, three <laughs> and four on that, but what, uh, what steps did you take to, you know, you must've done something from a marketing perspective. How did you become okay. known in that area to build that, that kind of. Well, ultimately it's how you treat patients, right. And, and, and patients have a circle of friends often, you know, in, in a similar uh, socioeconomic level. So these are patients who can't afford to come. Uh, I also do charity work. Uh, I did uh, a bunch of surgery about two months ago. In fact, the, the day after my own rotator cuff repair, I flew to Quito, Ecuador, and we did surgery for a week on on you know people who who couldn't afford otherwise. So that's very rewarding. Uh, but the reality is that being accessible, answering their questions remotely, and then I put an international patient coordinator in my office. That's okay. all she does. She helps them with the travel logistics. She sets up the telemedicine, which most people now are doing. Um, and then when they're when they're in in Miami, we're um, navigating them through the process, which fortunately is very easy in my center because it's all in one building, but still people have questions. And I think that's the, the American public is frustrated because our system is, is failing them uh, in, in that manner. Uh, so what we've done is tried to correct those problems uh, on that scale. Um, my website's a critical part. It's just drbadia.com, drbadia. And uh, pay, I, I, they get an immediate response from me. I'll I'll be here on my phone and I'll check it every you know, like every, like most people nowadays every every few hours and if I get a patient writing in from say Barbados or Mexico City or um you know somewhere in Canada I I I try to answer them right away and then and then I copy certain people from my office to facilitate the process. Got it. So it's a lot of more of your own effort, it is. grassroots, it referral is. based, it is. not really. It doesn't sound like a lot of digital marketing. You know, no, um, no, I mean, uh, we targeted. just redid my my website and we're going to we're, we're uh, improving the the SEO. Obviously, Google continues yeah. to be the monster. And uh, so so Google search for both ortho now locally and my own practice, even abroad. Uh, they, they'll look up um, in, you know, in Spanish, you know, best uh, hand surgeon or something like that. Right. And, you know, hopefully I come up. <laughs> I think you would. <laughs> uh, that's really interesting. Um, and and so. You know, in addition to all that we've already discussed, um, and I don't really understand how you do all of this, but you are also <laughs> a renowned author of Healthcare in the Trenches. So can you tell us about, about that book? And I'm also fascinated with that, you know, book writing process. How did you go about deciding to do it? How did you actually, you know, get it written and how did you get it published with the very limited free time you have? Yeah, um, no, it's, it's a great question. I, I'm kind of honestly amazed sometimes that I, that I actually pulled it off, but I had a little help with something called the lockdown of the pandemic. I had been thinking about this book, which I wrote a little bit out of frustration. And I think the readers can detect that and that's okay. I, I want the, the public, cause I wrote it really for the public. Um, they get a sense that me and, and other men, so many other, other clinicians are, are frustrated with the system. And I had been collecting some ideas from other contributors. So the book has 26 contributors. Finally, when I got back from a meeting, um, Asian Pacific hand meeting in Melbourne, Australia, we went on lockdown. So my, uh, my ex-wife did said, you know, you came from Australia, you can't see the kids, you know, except from afar. 
and we elective surgery was curtailed. Even in Miami, we were curtailed. So I wrote the book in 10 weeks. Um, I, I had the time then. I just didn't do a lot of binge watching. I, you know, I watched, uh, uh, you know, a little bit of Breaking Bad or something. But uh, for the most part, I was at the computer about 10, 12 hours a day. Wow. And I, I just knocked it out because it was it was really written from the heart. Um, I start the book, the introduction, by, by saying I didn't real I didn't want to write this book because the reality is why would I want to take all this time? But I felt it had to be done. And I do a lot of scientific writing, even though I have absolutely no university uh, a title or affiliation. Uh, the, my experience at Miami Hand Center is we, we were all pretty much academic. So I had to stop writing clinical papers and summaries and book chapters in my field to do this because I felt the story needed to be told to the public. So so if you were going to summarize in like, give, mm -hmm. give us the 20 second yeah. elevator pitch, what does the book say? The book says that... Um, that there are major problems in, in, in healthcare delivery. And I want to point them out from the clinician's perspective in the trenches, not an academician, not a bureaucrat, not a politician. Um, and I think the overarching point is there's too many middlemen. And I, and I, and I talk about that. So the, the second section of the book talks about uh, different categories of that. Um, and obviously the longest chapter is the chapter on insurance. All right. Yes, yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure that'd be fun for all of our, our friends on the insurance <laughs> side of things here. So uh, well, there's no animosity. And I say that, uh, and I say, you know why they're not that motivated to change when you think about it. So unfortunately that motivation is going to have to come from the public. Who's going to demand it. Just like we've, we, you know, we've seen this with uh, what, what happened with, you know, the police and, and it, it escalated to, to racial injustice and issues. And uh, the, you know, there's, there's a, a, a secret sauce now it's called social media. So I, I do try to be increasingly active on social media because you can really reach people and it's and it's not expensive. Yeah, no, that's that's great. We need more people fighting the fight on that. Yes, whether you're an employer do. and you're seeing 10, 20, 30 percent increases in premiums, whether, yes, you know, you're a, a provider, um, a clinician, uh -huh. you know, feeling. <laughs> Thank you. So, yeah, I'm trying to I'm learning <laughs> quickly, um, you know, who's who's worked so hard and struggling to get paid properly for what they what they did patients getting pulled into the mix it is uh, obviously it's what we do for a living and it's it's messy it messy is every day is. so there's definitely again more people fighting that fight's wonderful there's hope there, yeah. there is hope and you know as, as, as we look at um you know the orthopedic asc arena there's been rapid growth you we start to see a lot more than typically used to see multi-specialty environments which we still have quite a bit of now you're starting to see more and more single specialty orthopedic yeah. ASCs, and there's been rapid growth. It's arguably the fastest growing specialty within the surgery center market. And, uh, you know, and, and so total joints have driven that other, you know, high acuity procedures. What do you see on the horizon that's going to continue to drive that orthopedic growth in terms of any trends, big, you know, kind of macro trends and or uh, specific types of procedures that are now going to start to go from inpatient to HOPD to ASCs? Well, one of the big factors and the concern for patients is naturally pain and safety, right? So one of the big problems we have in this country is um, is is issues in hospital safety. There are uh, medical errors because these are big places, obviously very well-meaning, but when you have a very focused, smaller uh, surgery center, particularly focused in a uh, particular type of surgery, your outcomes are naturally going to be better. 
Uh, you're going to have just the nature of the facility. You're going to have a much lower infection rate. It's going to be much uh, less expensive, right? And so we're already seeing that because of, of improvements in anesthesia and uh, perioperative nursing, that we are now able to do, you know, say hip replacements, which is amazing. Uh, what still puzzles me and other orthopedists is why is it that, say, CMS and some of the payers will accept a hip replacement? that presumably you need to walk on, right? Whereas shoulder guys like myself say, well, why can I not do a shoulder replacement? They just go into a sling. They're, they're, you know, it's a moderate incision. And yet because the, um, the bureaucracy has not caught up with the advances. Yeah. And that's what I talk about with the middlemen needing to be more collaborative. Um, I do a lot of prosthesis at the base of the thumb for, for what's called basal joint arthritis of the thumb. It's a, it's a most common painful form of arthritis in the hand. And I've been doing a prosthesis for, for over, over a quarter century. Not, it's not as popular amongst American surgeons, uh, but yet with Medicare, I, I wasn't able to really do that because they won't pay for the implant, which is absurd. So, and I don't go to the hospital at all anymore. So what happens is I can't see some of those patients or right. now what I, I recently opted out of Medicare, which I did not want to do, yeah. but the system kind of drove me to this. Yeah. So now the patients say, you know what, I'm going to forego upgrading my, my plasma TV and I'm going to, you know, pay yeah. for a prosthesis. Yeah. Um, and they're very happy patients, but w the people in the trenches really need to, to drive this change and we need to be partners. And I find it's a very adversarial uh, problem uh, with the payers and uh, which <laughs> um, guy named Carl Schusler, who's very big in employer health. He, he, he doesn't call them payers. He calls them processors. Yeah. And it's really what it is. Um, but yet, you know, we do need them. I understand, but they've, they've gotten way too much control. Yeah. And it's silly because the reality is we want to save money, which would make them save money. I, I'm a capitalist. I'm a Cuban. I'm a kid born in Cuba. <laughs> we became communist. So I, don't, I have no problem with a health insurance company making, making a good amount of money. But it can't be at our expense of right. people actually delivering the care. Yeah. Are, are you seeing a lot of movement in terms of shoulders into the ASC? Yes, absolutely. They say that's the fastest growing, but but still, uh, it's not on the list. As far as I know, it may have changed right. in the last no. month, but I don't think it's on the list. Um, and I do reverse shoulders, which you probably know is actually a bigger surgery. Uh, my favorite is the resurfacing. And I've been doing that outpatient for, you know, for 15 years. Um, but the reverse shoulders, because of... Uh, advances, for example, um, you know, shout out to uh, Pasira Pharmaceuticals with with Exparel. I I myself had a, a tibial osteotomy, which is a, a painful surgery on the knee. I had that, never had pain afterwards, and I've had both my rotator cuffs done. Uh, I flew the next day. My my surgeon wasn't that happy, but <laughs> I flew to Ecuador the day after, and I had complete. Well, in fact, I never really had pain after my rotator cuff. So that is a big difference. Whereas people. Uh, the public needs to learn this because the public naturally is going to be afraid of pain after certain orthopedic procedures. Yeah. So it's, it's always comes down to patient education. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. It's really exciting to see that movement. And I do, I am in the camp that I think shoulders is going to be, obviously we need Medicare to cooperate, yes. but I think that's going to be the next kind of big wave um, that will follow sort of the total. Well, I, I would, I would like to see Medicare and all the payers, um, in my, you know, I have a podcast every two weeks called Fixing Healthcare from the Trenches. And uh, I, re and I'm going to do one uh, tomorrow, actually, he from here. Um, I, I reiterate three points that could change healthcare. And I'll just 
tell one, we need oversight, not authorization. So it, it, it's, it's fine. There are bad players. Um, I, I was speaking to somebody yesterday at dinner who, who had worked with uh, Dr. Death, yeah, right? That, that got right. a lot of play. Right. And so there are some bad players out there, but you don't need to take every clinician and put them through hurdles to deliver care. It really drives up cost. Yeah. Um, so so if, if, if a surgeon thinks that they can do X procedure in an ASC safely, and the medical director agrees, anesthesia agrees, nursing agrees, then why is the payer standing in the way? Even if it's even if it's Medicare, right? That that doesn't make any sense to me. Agreed, agreed. And yep. and uh, so so if this has been wonderful. I'm going to finish with one last <laughs> kind of fun question. I yeah. think is is uh, I I saw your podcast recently with Jordan Belfort, the real wolf, the real wolf of Wall Street, <laughs> which is you know maybe the greatest movie ever. Um, and uh, big 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 uh, showing a lot of range. Margot Robbie from Leonardo's wife oh. in that to Barbie this year. Um, oh, okay. I, I wasn't aware. I, I, <laughs> yes. I, yeah. yeah. She was Barbie. Um, but so, so what interesting or funny stories do you have from spending time with Jordan Belfort? Oh, well, um, so I, I, I won't go into any detail about the procedure, you know, due to HIPAA, even, even though he um, approved. And I think most forward thinking patients uh, want other patients to learn. So he had a, 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 a painful issue that, uh, that we resolved. He's, he's a, uh, He's actually having some minor issues now because these things, you know, patients think many times that you have a surgery and that two months, three months later, you're going to be absolutely pain free. It's not always the case. Uh, but one thing uh, he did teach me, he just put out his fourth book and um, I'm learning about the book uh, industry. And um, his his comment from his fourth book is stay in index funds. <laughs> so can you imagine? Here's a guy who's been an expert in investing. And he's saying, don't try to outthink the market. So, uh, you know, I'll, I'll try to follow that advice. Yes. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking right now to see if I can get a publisher because I self-published. You asked me before the process. I hired somebody who was wonderful to walk me through the process of self-publishing uh, through Amazon. So the book is available on Amazon. It's also on Barnes and Noble. And um, he, I think if a big publishing house gets behind it, then, then maybe the public can really... Yeah be faced because it, it's all about that right if, if you have a critical mass in the public then maybe people will get um you know engaged and want to change the system yeah so to your index fund comment <laughs> i was just reading the other day that over the last 50 years all the gains we've seen in the stock market have come from two percent of the companies wow. so 98 percent of the companies have either performed flat or underperformed wow. So unless you're lucky enough of your stock picking to get in that two yeah, percent, you will get yeah. beat by the market. So another shout out wow. to the index fund strategy. Well, see, folks to, here to at Becker's, that. you even you even get some financial <laughs> advice from, from none other than Nader, who is really I, I see you as really as an expert in this area. And uh, I want to thank you, by the way, for your interest in in uh, some of these things I'm doing, particularly ortho now, uh, because you know I, in the end I'm a doctor and uh, I never took a business course, but I have some innate sense of marketing. Um, and and I'm uh, I'm not afraid. Um, I'm not adverse to risk, which I think many of my colleagues are. I'm not sure where that comes from, but definitely um, I need to surround myself with people such as yourself because these are are, are hard um, uh, issues to to tackle. Yeah. You have to have expertise from so many areas. Yeah. Well, thank you for appreciate that, and thank you. You are brilliant and talented surgeon and entrepreneur and business person. And it's really inspiring for all of us to see someone who's 
you know, doesn't sleep and goes around the clock to do like so it. many different things. Uh, so it, this was wonderful. And thank you for taking thank the you time very much. to spend with us today. Um, I uh, lo love to hear, you know, comments and, and questions and because, you know, in the end, we're, we're all learning. Thank yeah. you. Great. Thanks.